With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, ladies and gents, it's that time. Turn up your speakers, strap on a smile. It's the Sims and Lepco Podcast. Here's your host, Adam Lepko and Chris Sims. All right, okay, what is going on? Welcome to the Sims and Lepco Podcast. It is episode 72. And man, is it good to be back. Uh, we're not going to talk at 72. Maybe, maybe for you. You know what? <laughs> You're 72. Which 72 are you going uh, with? Uh, I'm going with Refrigerator Perry. See, I was going to let Rich do that <laughs> nah. one. Yeah, I'm taking them. I'm busting them right I'm away. I'm going Trey Thomas. <laughs> uh, before I introduce Rich, Josh, well, do you have a 72 other than Refrigerator Perry? I, I was just thinking. I can't think of who's another 72 other than uh, the He's the best one. Yeah, he is. A, the fact that you're here for the Tall fridge Jones would be a really good 72. You remember Ed Tuttle Jones of the Cowboys back I remember in the day? Him boxing, I remember him boxing and getting and I losing. I think he did box. Yes, you're right. Yeah. I'm That's right. An, an era where you had to do other things to make an income as an NFL player. <laughs> it was like the wide world of sports. Do you have a 72? I do. Mike Fladell, offensive lineman the 2000. Six Rutgers football team. It's been a few weeks off for me, but uh, I've been saving that one. Oh, he's it's great back. to be back, guys. Mike so Fladell. happy for that one. <laughs> All right, let me give some some uh, introduction. We are now joined by a multiple New York Times best-selling author, a contributing editor to Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair, co-creator of a show that I am so pissed that it is not on anymore. Because I don't get I it either. It was great. Actually, yeah. vinyl. I thought it was freaking awesome. I'm going to say it was. Awesome. You're on no, the Cursor Podcast. Yes. So, Fendrick, edit that I, out. Honestly, I didn't even know it was canceled until I looked our guy up uh, a few nights ago. And I was like, man, they canceled vinyl? Because I was kind of into it, too. It was I awesome. Right. Uh, I, I received an email that you are Ryan Holiday's favorite living writer. Wow. That's awesome. He emailed me that. He's, I said, I'm having Rich Cohen on the podcast. He goes, I'm freaking jealous. He's my favorite living writer. So put that one on the mantle. He is the reason that one of my heroes is named Sam the Banana Man. He is the reason that one of the compliments that I want to give people is the old Zipperoo. And he's the reason that I'm annoying my family that I've been listening to Muddy Waters nonstop. He is half Keith Richards. He is half Jim McMahon. He is freaking Rich Cohen. <laughs> what is going on? All right, so Rich, um, I didn't get Rich, I didn't get Keith Richards or Jim McMahon when he walked in the door. I don't know. Those yeah. are so 
here's what's really funny. Are these just author egos? Uh, so I was listening to a podcast with Ryan Holiday, and he mentioned two books from you that I went out and got immediately, one of them being uh, The Fish That Ate the Whale, the other being Tough Jews. And I read Fish That Ate the Whale about Sam Zamore, who revolutionized the banana industry, and I was like, I have never enjoyed a book this much, and I haven't read one this fast. And then, he, and then Ryan was like, by the way, he wrote a book about the 85 bears, read that one in like no time and then I just finished your I've read I've, I feel like I know you like your whole life story <laughs> like I see your your childhood bedroom of like a Keith Richards poster and a Jim McMahon poster and then you went to Tulane and you got a little bit wild like I I dig your all right, man. you can hug him later. Let's go. <laughs> no, Let's get going. But, you know, I, just, I interviewed Peter Berg. You know Peter Berg? Yes. It just, and he goes, where'd you go to school? I said, Chilean. He goes, oh, so you're an alcoholic. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I knew a lot of kids that went to Tulane as well. That was a, Jer a North Jersey... Let's go there. Those are the kids that didn't have the best grades in right. Tulane. That's sorry, pretty sorry. awesome. Sorry. We weren't graded fairly, so I think <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, but yeah, the, the book that came out most recently is The Sun, the Moon, and the Rolling Stones. You went on tour with the Rolling Stones. Uh, you covered them with Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, one thing that I'm very fascinated with is when you meet your idol. So you grew up idolizing Keith Richards. You grew up idolizing Jim McMahon. If you could talk about like the experiences of sitting down and learning who they were as people, what was that like for you? Well, it's interesting because, well, first of all, Keith Richards, you know, my brother at a certain point moved up to the attic of our house, which was like, it seemed like paradise to me, mm. like locked the door, wouldn't let me in. And... Um, <clears throat> He, no rules. My parents wouldn't go up there because they were too lazy to walk up That's the extra so flight of stairs. <laughs> and he's, and I, at that time, when I was a kid, my favorite song was like Rhinestone Cowboy. That was like the truest sure. song I knew. And one day I heard him cranking Honky Tonk Women, and it just sort of completely changed my life. And I got completely into the Stones by listening through his door and hearing all the dirty stuff they were singing and thinking, I want to try that stuff. Yeah. As, soon as, I, as soon as I can get out of this house, I'm going to try all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and, um, and I went to Tulane. And then I got this job at Rolling Stone completely when I was very young. And uh, I ended up, a whole crazy set of circumstances, getting sent to Toronto where the Rolling Stones were rehearsing to hang out with the Stones. Wow. And I flew. They said, can you go? I'm like, I'm going to the airport right now. I showed up at Toronto like in the middle of the night thinking I'll wait till the next morning. Jane Rose, who's Keith Richards' like, assistant, came and said, you want to go hear him? I'm like, well, is the middle of the night? She's like, you're on Rockstar time now, man. It's it That's starts the at day. Yeah, <laughs> they start they start at ten and they go to like eight in the morning. Wow. And they took me out to this little school in suburban Toronto, right. and it was like a grammar school, and just the kind I went to. And it's always like the fantasy is what's going on in your school in the middle of the night in the middle of the summer. Right. The Rolling Stones are rehearsing. Oh you know, my God. You walk, they have no idea. Probably. No. I mean, and it's like the I, it was in the gym. We just had a gym teacher named Mr. Kreitzer. He used to make me run laps for being a smartass all the time. And he hated that music, and the music had taken over school. That's how I felt about That's it. That's so funny. And that when I walked in, I heard the brown sugar riff, like, going through the whole school, and you follow it to its source. And there are the stones, just the stones. And for, like, five days, five nights, I just sat all night and watched them play pretty much every song they had, argue wow. with each other and play these songs. It was it, the amazingness of that experience didn't hit me until, like, two years later, I swear. But then I started interviewing them and hanging out with them. And Keith, who was like sitting like in a chair that looked like a throne with the skull-shaped ring, coolest guy that ever lived. Right. And you can't understand a word that he says, really, because in the middle of talking, he'll start to laugh. And when he starts to laugh, that usually leads to a coughing fit, you know? <laughs> and he's got this doctor's bag, like an old-fashioned house called doctor's bag. And he's right. like, what's wrong, man? Because in here I got the cure to whatever ails you. And he's the one who said to me, I started asking him questions, and he goes... 
Are they actually like prescription doctor things, or I never own concoctions? It's and more whatever. like a Halloween sack. <laughs> like you say, stick right. your hand in and grab. Maybe you get Wait some Pez. Maybe you get some Valium. There's no other way to know. <laughs> you know, right? Whatever you get, you get. Yeah. It's like they say but to your kids, "What you get is what you get." <laughs> yeah. It'll cure something. And um, and if that messes you up, I got the cure to that in here too. Right. Right. And um, and basically he said to me, you know, what year were you born? And I said, 19. 68, which doesn't make me very young now, but made me very young then. Wow. And he started to laugh, and he said, you should be answering my questions. You tell me what it's like. For you, there's always been the sun and the moon and the Rolling Stones. Mm. And I found him to be like, you know, he's a guy who had these drug problems, almost died a lot of times, is on the most watched death list. And it's almost like he kind of had this zen quality. You know, you could sort of look at him, and he, he's a guy who, like, figured out how to be in the world. And it's through music. And I felt being around him kind of calming. Because mm. I'm kind of a nervous person. And you think, God, I did something bad. You think, well, you didn't do anything worse than Keith Richards yeah, did. Yeah, sure, sure. I took too much of those. You can take more of those than Keith Richards did. Right. Yeah. So it you made know? you feel good about yourself a yeah, little bit. Yeah, whatever you know, you've done, he's overdone. Right, right. You know? So, and, I mean, that was just an incredibly cool experience. And uh, Jim McMahon, who I, see, if you're from Chicago, the Bears had very boring quarterbacks. Yes. And they didn't have any offense. Right. My whole life, the joke was Peyton left, Peyton right, Peyton up the middle, because you're Walter Peyton. Sure, sure. And McMahon shows up in this black and white era of boring players, boring quarterbacks, Bob Avellini, Vince Evans, none of them were very exciting. And McMahon shows up with a case of beer and, like, big thing of skull. Spiked hair. Challenging the commissioner with a headband because he just doesn't care. Challenging his head coach, Ditka, even though he knows he's going to get cursed out when he calls an audible. Well, that was the joke about 1984, 1985, 1986, is you could tell when the Bears scored a touchdown because Mike Ditka was having a temper tantrum. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because McMahon had called... You know, I've seen videos of it yeah. where they, you know, they talk a lot about how McMahon would change so many calls at the line of scrimmage. Uh, I just want to like, I have a cool McMahon story, which, okay. I, I would, but I just, because I, I know he's a polarizing figure and he's got a lot of funny things. I'm at the Pro Bowl with my father in 1986. They've just won the Super Bowl, the Bears. This is like the week the challenger blows up, right, going right. into space. In, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm in Hawaii there. I, I really am just grasping what the Super Bowl and Pro Bowl are. But I know who Jim McMahon is, and I'm in the hallway of the hotel. I'm bored. I'm like five and a half, almost about to be six years old. I throw the, I'm throwing a golf ball against the wall of the hallway. All of a sudden, Jim McMahon comes out of his bedroom door, because I'm sure I'm annoying the crap out of him. And he looks out, and he's like, who is this little pan out here with right. a golf ball? And, of course, I look a lot like my father. I think he put two and two together. But he gave me two of his headbands. Shut up. Oh, and... I mean, that was the coolest thing ever. Jim McMahon, I had, I was wearing a headband here and around my neck. How'd your like, father feel about hey, it? He was all right with it. He liked, <laughs> Jim. he liked Jim. He really did. He really liked Jim McMahon a, a lot. So, uh, and Jim was great to me that way. But it was one of those moments where, even though I was really young, can't believe you haven't told me that before. It's stuck in my brain forever. Because you've always said that you had an amazing moment with Magic Johnson, yep. and you've had cool moments. But Jim McMahon giving you a headband was—you would have lost cool. your crap. I feel like if that would have happened. Well, when I was growing up, there were a few of these guys who were around, you know, like the, the, the Rolling Stones existed like in the ether, man, the yeah. upper air. You didn't see him, but McMahon was around. Right. I mean, and to see him was incredibly cool. Bill Murray was around, right. yeah. you know, and these were kind of these models of these guys who would be more likely to go to Tulane, you right. felt like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, wait, can I, can I just ask one question with you? Just, you know, your experience with the Rolling Stones and the Bears, uh, they both were, I don't know, controlled chaos almost to a degree like what was 
how did they make the chaos work into that harmony all the time, just as far as you looking at it like that, just being around the band and being around some of the bears? That's interesting. I never really thought that is. I mean, the Rolling Stones were, that's the whole sound. Right. You know, the, I spoke to the guy, Daryl Jones, who became their bass player, who said, you know, it's not perfect, but perfect name perfect. It's got to sound like an engine, like when your car engine is just about to explode, mm, you know, right. but it doesn't. Right. That's like the thing. And I always thought the way that the way Keith Richards played, the way Keith Richards plays, is like, you ever watch The Wizard of Oz, you watch the Scarecrow dance? It's right. like, seems completely out of control, but when you look at it carefully, you realize it's very tightly controlled. <laughs> yes. It's an illusion. Right. Yeah. You know, and... Um, Especially like the Rolling Stones when you get to the early 70s and they're in the south of France recording what I think is their greatest record, XL on Main Street, and they have this weird schedule where Keith Richards is addicted to heroin and they're just hanging around waiting for the sort of fog to clear right. and every, the mix is just right. right. And he, they go down to the basement and they're in this basement of this old mansion all in these different little cubes because it's like a cellar basement where supposedly... The, the, the SS used to torture people during wow, World War II. Wow. And they're all hooked up by wires recording these songs like Sweet Virginia and Soul Survivor. And it's like the chaos caught on vinyl, literally vinyl, yes. not just of the music, but of their lives, of the drugs, of their <laughs> fights with each other, yes. of how they loved each other, of how they hated each other. I mean, to me, the reason I loved the Stones and the same with the Bears was they were like a gang. You felt yes. like they were a gang. And right. if you got into them, you can kind of be part of the gang. Right. And for me, the thrill of it is like you get into the club room where the gang's making the decisions, right. you know. And I'm a little brother. I have much older siblings. And I was always the kid up, not allowed downstairs. The party's going on downstairs. I'm lying in bed listening to like, cars go so up and down bad. the street, yeah. muscle cars. I'm hearing bottles break. I'm like right. lying there thinking I want to get down there. Yeah. And <laughs> always like the Rolling Stones, I finally showed up. Like, I was at this party in, at the Four Seasons, and after the MTV Music Awards, and, like, Eric Clapton was there, and Steve Winwood was there, and the Stones were there, and Steven Tyler was there. Right. And they're all drinking and telling dirty jokes, and I'm thinking, I finally got to this party. I knew it existed, and I got here, and when I got here, everybody was old, mm. you know? And there was sort of that feeling, and with the Bears, too, because when I met them and interviewed them, it was just right. a few years ago. Yeah. And I brought a football with me when I met McMahon. because I, I was going to bring up that story. Yeah, I wanted to play catch with him. You know, yeah. one of my favorite sports books was the Roger Kahn book, uh, Boys of Summer, about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Sure. And he'd play catch with these guys, you know, and it was like... What an amazing experience. Yeah, and I thought, and I, and, and I realized, well, football's not baseball, man. McMahon's not in the shape. His body's beat up. Yeah, and I said, would you want to play catch? And he goes, huh. I can't even throw my keys. Mm. Well, he, he he played the position uh, a way more physical way than most oh, quarterbacks. That I have a lot book. of respect for. Yeah, Jim I'm reading the book, way. and I, I hear about the fact that he was getting his fist injected. Like you say in the book, he didn't throw spiral, spirals. It wasn't that he was incapable of throwing spirals. His hand was like broken, and he right. saw it with like a yeah. broken well, hand. That's what he said to me. The, the dope on him was always he can't. He throws an ugly pass, like, and he can't throw a spiral. And I asked him about it. He's like. Pfft. Because my hand was broken and I couldn't feel it. When you can't feel your hand, you don't know it's where that is. possible, right? He yeah. was a gifted thrower. He really was. But he was one of the first throwers to really make the glove a staple. When he mm. went to the Minnesota Vikings there late in his career, started playing for them, he started wearing the glove no, on the regular. I remember that, which was he started wearing it in the playoffs in 85. Yeah, you're right. Because it was, so, it was cold. so cold. And my yes. dad played them that year in the yeah. national playoff game. And suddenly it helped him throw. And then so he wore it in the, in Super, the Super Bowl. In the in, Dome. Yeah. Right. Uh, in your book, to kind of express the dominance of the, the Bears. A game against your dad was actually brought up right. when the, the, the Bears win 21-0. Yes. And in it, John Madden calls it the most dominant performance I've ever seen on a football field. I'm curious, did you derive a lot of joy from watching his dad get beat up in that <laughs> game? 
I always liked Phil Simms, I will say. Did you? Yes, yeah, I did. That's good to hear. I had, a, uh, I had an appreciation as a Bears fan. Well, he was a little like Jim McMahon. He stood in there and got his butt whooped a lot of the time. And wasn't he picked like before Montana? Wasn't they the he same? He was. He was yeah. the seventh pick of the draft out of Moorhead State. Right. And he always thought he was going to get drafted by the San Francisco And that 49ers. was one of their plans, right? It was. It, the 49ers had told him that if, if you were there at the end of the first round that year uh, or whatever it was, they were going to take him. He thought for sure he was going there. Yeah. Yeah. And if you went there, you can imagine this. Well, it would have been, yeah. been different. Yeah. I might not be sitting here with but you guys. But that's a lot That's a lot about football, which is, you know, I always think like Jim McMahon didn't have these huge numbers, and people say, oh, he wasn't a great quarterback. He didn't have the huge numbers because he played in Mike Ditka's offensive system. Right. If he'd played in San Francisco, he would have been Joe Montana. I mean, I believe that. He had that kind of skill early in I his career. I can't believe he went to BYU. Like, that's still the part that makes right. no yes. sense to me. But he went to, to BYU because they ran kind they, of a pro offense. They chucked it. They were, yes, they were the in-vogue offense at that time. That's Steve Young. I just him. think of, like, what BYU stands yes, for and right. these principles. Little, yeah. And, and he was constantly McMahon. on probation and constantly yeah. in trouble. Which is awesome. Wait, all right, so I, I just want to get back to one more thing about the Rolling Stones. You because, can ask a lot of things All right, but I just want to, because, like, I'm always fascinated by sometimes I meet athletes and I go, Oh, he's a little more of a nerd than I thought. Maybe that's why right. he's successful. And then every now and then you meet somebody and you go, wow, he's a lot crazier and parties harder than I would ever imagine. Uh, like Mick Jagger, what, what was he like? Was he like the the general, like the quarterback of the team to always keep everybody in the straight now? Or were they like, oh, Mick's so annoying? And Well, when I, was, when I first saw him, right. I saw him in 1982, Tattoo U. I was in junior high school. And in the, like near the middle of the show, uh, Mick, Goes off stage, he's gone. Keith sings two songs. Hmm. And we're all like, what's he doing, what's he doing? And we're like, oh, he's backstage doing all this cocaine to have right. the energy to finish the I show. Was, I thought he was with a girl. I thought you were going to tell me he was with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. And when I went on the road with him, I saw exactly what he did when he came off stage. He had a glass of water and a power bar. Wow. You so know? there you go. Wow. And, and the, the fact is, all the Rolling, well, the Rolling Stones, I think they're the greatest rock band for a lot of reasons. But one is they lasted. They're the only one yeah. who lasted the whole way. And the reason is just because of Mick Jagger. Hmm. Because basically Mick Jagger was a designated driver for that band. And he kind of stayed sober when everybody else was completely wasted. He mm-hmm. kept it going forward, kept it going forward. And as a result, there's like a lot of resentment. You right. know, and there's this big fight between Mick and Keith that lasts. And like to and me... Is that, it still lasting today? I don't know exactly what it's like this day, but yes. Wow. So that was a huge shock for me, which is like I said, they were like a gang. And you want to get into the club room where the two leaders are. And you, when you get there, you realize... God, these guys kind of hate each other. Right. But you know, that's probably what fuels so much of it. It fuel, It's the yeah. chaos of it. And, but, you know, at times it would almost be like there's a point where it fuels it and a point where it breaks it. Mm-hmm. And um, you get to the point. It's like Ditka and Buddy Ryan. Oh, actually. my gosh. Right. That's actually really funny. Yeah. Ditka, but we were just talking about how Ditka and Buddy Ryan, you think about it now, like Ditka was never happy with anybody. And Buddy was like the main guy that was going to stand up to him. Damn, and then you compare it to Keith and Mick. That's interesting. Well, and also... It's, it led to success. Yeah, and they love each other. I mean, they're like brothers. Right, so, way. like, where does the resentment come? It's like Keith resented that, like, what, Mick always thinks he's right and, and he's always got his stuff together. Well, it's interesting because it's, like, one of these things where if you really look at the Rolling Stones, you realize it goes right back to the beginning, right. which is they grew, They were with each other when they were five years old in elementary school. Yeah. And then they separated. And Mick went off. You, took, you take these tests in England, and they separate you, like, where are you headed in life? Right. And Mick went off. Like, he's heading off to the good life. He goes to the London School of Economics. His parents have some money, and they're successful. Keith goes off to basically trade school. Hmm. Like he's going to be working with a drill, hmm. you know? Right. And he can't even do that. And he ends up in art school. Right. And when they meet again, at that time in England, it was after the war. England was broke. No one had anything. 
they meet on a train station in Dartford, England, and Keith Mick is carrying a pile of these blues records, Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry. They all love this music, but no one could get the records. Right. It's like, it's like a thing you love when you're a kid. Nobody has it, but who has it? Yeah, and now with like rich Spotify and iTunes, yeah. and you, you don't So the rich kids got it. Right, and the, so they, they, become, they start playing together, but there's always this idea that Mick is not in it all the way. Like, to me, I always said Keith was like a rock and roll Cortez, man. Burn the boats and head into the jungle. And Mick was always like, well, if this doesn't work, I can go back to school. Or, you know, even when he left school, he stayed like had a you know uh, deferment or whatever you call it leave of absence yeah orders, so he yeah. could go back so right. and there was always like one foot in one foot out and this this real ambition and it's like which way are you going to be you're going to think about where we're going to go and look at the statistics and think you know like to me that's like the the 85 bears which is which guys were like looking down the road and which guys were like let's live in this moment because yeah, right. this moment might not ever come again mm. right you know and it's like you have a choice you really see it in football like are you choosing the long term or are you choosing right now? Yes. Right. You know, and that to me was always Mick and Keith, and that's the You tension. were talking yeah. about getting to the party a little bit late. I think I saw a parallel between you talk to the Rolling Stones where it's like, oh, how do you get up? And they say, when you hear ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones, that energy comes up. And then when you were talking with the Bears, they were saying, when you run through the tunnel and you hear that 70,000, I miss that. That's the part I want. How many similarities were there of these old rock and roll legends and these guys that used to dominate the gridiron and looking back on those days and going, that was when I felt most alive? I mean, I think that there's a lot of similarities. And what you talked about is Keith Richards said that. He said, no matter how crappy you feel, the minute you hit the stage, mm -hmm. you feel great. Right. Yeah. You know, and he said, I recommend it to everybody, which is his way to remind <laughs> you. Yeah. But one of the things that got me into the Bears book, or to decide it was a book, was I interviewed Doug Plank. Doug Plank wore number 46. Yes. He gave 46 its, yep, right. the defense its name. He was the human missile. He was a complete madman. You know, and his thing was, they always complained about how he played in practice, which was he tried Too to take hard. your head off. Right, right. And he'd say, look, he said to me, look, I, you, most great athletes have an A game, a B game, a C game. He'd say, I only got an A game. Yeah, right. You know, I got to go as hard as I can all the time or I'm not on the field. Yeah, yeah. right, right. And um, that was his thing, basically, like the excitement of the kickoff. He loved to play special teams. And the charge of that and the way he talked about it was, and this is a guy who now has titanium shoulders, mm -hmm. you know. Dear God. I mean, he, he was, any Bears fan will remember how crazy yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Crazy. The, the thing yeah, that I yeah. like is, is he, he was before the 85. He set the tone for that 85 Bears, and it was built around his skill set, and then all of a sudden you look up and, holy crap, there's Otis Wilson. There's, right. there's Refrigerator Perry. Well, we have a Marshall, team around this concept right. now that's so good. Right, and, you, and bringing back something you said about chaos. Yeah. Which is, again, it was like that was the Bears, because it was so f great when you got into looking at the Bears, was basically Chicago is central in the history of pro football. I mean, the NFL was sort of started by George Hallis. Yeah. Yeah. He's one who had the old Zipperoo. Right. People my age remember that Chicago is having this boring offense and, you know, good defenses, the black and blue division and all that, and the monsters of the midway. Yes. But the fact is that the Bears had the first great modern offense which was the T formation with Sid Luckman, Sid Luckman playing out of Columbia, running it. They beat the Redskins 73 to nothing. Yes, who was the running back? I can't remember. Well, maybe I'm thinking before that there might have been a bigger running back. It was Bronco Nagurski. Bronco Nagurski, that's who I could who think was, of. You, know, you look at how big he was, he could play now. Yes, I mean, he right. Was such before a big guy time, to be right. playing that position. And, um, and what, what Hallis did was Hallis said the coach has got to be another – the quarterback has to be another coach on the field. Right. And he made the co the quarterback such an important player. Right. And then other coaches came, other offensive coaches, and expanded it, made it more, made it more, made it bigger, yeah. made it bigger. By the time you get to Buddy Ryan in Chicago, it's like he looks at the offensive scheme and goes, 
oh my God, they, there's one huge flaw. Yeah. They've made the quarterback too important. Yeah. You know, so why are we going to chase 10 guys all over the field when we can just kill one? Right. Mm. And Doug Plank always said that was their strategy in those years was we're going to get to know your second string quarterback today. Mm. We're going to bring one more guy, no matter how many people you keep to protect, we're going to bring one more guy. And you guy don't know where he's list. coming from. Right. And that was the chaos, guys. So when you'd watch him, it was so exciting because, you know, you, you always kind of wanted to see the offense, especially right. with Peyton. Now suddenly... On defense, their guys are moving everywhere. And it was people would say it was unsound, yeah. that offense, because if you looked at the film, there were guys wide open. Right. They would take chances and say, the hell, the hell with it. We're going to blitz everybody over here and right. leave one guy to cover two over here. Or whatever and blitz six plays in right. a row. And, right. and you didn't know where they were. And the, the idea of the Bears was, it doesn't matter if guy's wide open. You're never going to get to him because you're going to be too scared. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting, too, about both of these, I mean, just the Rolling Stones and the Bears. All right, so... You have one with the Stones who made it last for a long time. Like you said, they're probably the greatest rock band ever, and they've done it forever. And then you have the Bears who, of course, were equally chaotic, but didn't only made it one. I think most people look back at the Bears and go, they underperformed so a little bit. So a huge part so of I would his like book to hear, on Monsters right. is talking about how, how, did, how was it only one? They only won one, right? And they, they were, were the youngest four. team in the NFL yes, when they won. I and they, they, and they had all right. these future Hall of Famers. And they could have more. Right. I mean, guys that you think could maybe be in the Hall of Fame aren't because there's almost too many of them. Right. You know? And they had guys that like Jim McMahon who the statistics don't really show how good they were. Sure. And, you know, there was a gazillion reasons why they didn't repeat what the, the most obvious one is if you make a list of the bears there's like one thing oh, they all had in common after they won the super bowl which is like i think 22 of them open bars <laughs> you yeah, know it's the kiss of death yeah so i mean like what are you gonna do today after practice well i'm gonna go buy my bar and you know and <laughs> maybe a few guys will go and i'll make sure we all get drunk so we're useless at practice tomorrow and Buddy Ryan left. Buddy Huge. Ryan left. Yes, right. And, you know, and basically I think that, and then people don't remember this, but Jim McMahon was hugely important. So in 84 they lost to San Francisco yes. in the title game. Right. And they, the, what they were missing was McMahon. If they had McMahon, I believe they could have won that Super They yeah. could have gotten to that Super Bowl. Yeah. And um, McMahon in the offseason, after they won the Super Bowl, wrote his book. And in his book he just ripped McCaskey, Michael McCaskey, right. the owner of the team, to shreds. <laughs> and I remember interviewing, um, you know, one of the offensive linemen, and uh, Kurt Becker, and he's like, "Listen, some people pretend they're crazy. That son of a <laughs> McMahon, he actually was crazy." <laughs> and he's like, "He gave me his book. I'm like, this guy owns the team, man. Right. You know." And basically, from that moment on, McMahon was kind of gonna be gone. They were looking for a reason to get rid of him. Right. And they drafted Flute. They brought in Flutie. Yes. And they Tom Zack. Yeah. Tom Zack. And they there. and they drafted um, Harbaugh. Yes. Right. With their first pick, which I mean, McMahon was young right. at yeah. that point. So the team started to come apart. They started to let guys go, and uh, and then they had this this thing between Ditka and McCaskey, which is. You know, McCaskey sort of thought, I think, as long as Ditka was there, it was still George Hallis's team. Mm -hmm. And he needed his own. Because Hallis was the one that hired Ditka. And, and, and Ditka was a played for And him. played for him, yeah. And, you know, people don't remember Mike Ditka was Gronkowski. I mean, he was the first right. modern tight end. Yeah. And that was Hallis's offensive brilliance, which is Hallis saw Ditka catch at Pitt and said he's got great hands. If you can get him 20 yards downfield and he can catch the ball, no one's going to be able to tackle right. him. Right, right. You know? And they won a championship, a title in 63 together. And so, and D before Hallis died, he gave Ditka a bottle of champagne and said, open it when you win the Super Bowl. You know, so there was this feeling of, cool. we got to, you know, I, really, I want to put my own stamp and make this my own team. And yeah. I remember when they let Michael Jordan go from the Bulls, yeah. um, Jerry Krause, who was the GM, said, 
um, well, we want to start rebuilding. And Jordan said, go ask the Cubs. They've been rebuilding for 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, rebuilding's right. kind of overrated. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right, yes. so I want to ask one that's a little bit more writing-centric. This is my deep dive question. Okay. What I find fascinating about your writing style is to understand who the Rolling Stones are, I need to, you explain to me what England was like after World War II. For me to understand why the 85 Bears team was so special, I need to understand the steel mills across the Midwest and how football started. And I'm curious how you do your dive in terms of research and all that and how you find your starting point to tell a story. Well, first of all, part of the fun of being a writer, to me, the kind of books I write is you get to really explore stuff you're really interested in. And you always get the story, like, in the middle. Yeah. You never get where it really comes from. And usually when a football team wins a Super Bowl, like the Bears in an 85, it's the end of, some, of a long chain of moves. It does, didn't start at the beginning of the year or even at the beginning of the coach's tenure. And like I said, like, you have to go back to the origins of the NFL and what Hallis built offensively to understand what Buddy figured out defensively, and that's how the sort of picture suddenly makes sense. What was your aha moment for that, though, to see the connection between George Hallis and a 46 defense with Bud Ryan? Where was it like, wow, that's the connecting philosophy? I think it's the moment that Buddy Ryan was an assistant coach on the Jets, and they were preparing for the Super Bowl. Right, Super and, Bowl three against the Colts. Yeah, and right. he heard the coach talking about how whatever we do, we got to protect Joe Namath. Right. You know, if we have to have, you know, Eight guys blocking. Right. you got to protect Joe Namath. Right. And Buddy sort of thought, God, if they're working so hard to protect him. There must be something there, man. Right. Like, i must, I got to get to this guy. Right. And that's when he sort of, def sort of untangled the entire offensive scheme of pro football that started in this slow move. You go all the way back to um, uh, who you mentioned, Bronco Nagurski, right. throwing a pass inside Chicago Stadium that is then caught by Red Grange, right. and it was an illegal play, but it was such a great play they decided, you know what, it should be legal, so let's just say it counts. Holy cow. You know, right. and, the, and the pass becoming so important yeah. that the object became destroy the quarterback. And then to the Rolling Stones, the fact that I really never listened to Muddy Waters before last week, and now I can't stop freaking listening to him. Like I, like, I was walking around suburbia, Margate, New Jersey, with a portable speaker in my backpack, blasting Muddy Waters, and I thought, if this was 60, 70 years ago, people would be like, what's this southern crap you're playing right. in our town? But to understand that, like, people in, in just war-torn Britain had no music to relate to except for southern black music that was not accepted in America and that explains that Britain resold southern black music to white Americans and then that became our popular music blew me away to understand that American that, that what was rock and roll was in America for like all those years and we there. never paid attention to it right well it's sort of the famous story of Robert Johnson goes to the crossroads and makes a deal with the devil to get rock and roll and he dies when he's 27 years old which then becomes a Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, mm. they all die when they're right. 27 years yeah. old. Right. And, um, you know, basically, if you go back to all those guys that were the founding guys we think of British rock and roll, like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton and um, the Beatles and the Kinks, mm. they all have this memory of lying in bed somewhere in England after war where everything was bleak. They won the war, but they were broke. Right. The yeah. em their empire was being dismantled. Right. And they hear Elvis Presley. Yeah. And they hear the guitar behind Elvis Presley, which is Scotty Moore. 
and they become completely fixated on this music, which is authentic and real and free. And then Elvis goes into the army, and um, you know, Buddy Holly dies, mm. and they love rock and roll, and rock and roll seems to go away, and they go searching for it, and they find this blues music, which is being played on Armed Forces Radio. Right. So they heard it in England, and they started basically all imitating it and copying it, mostly because they couldn't get the records. So yeah. if you wanted to hear it, because you'd hear them on the radio, you had to learn to play it. Mm. That's why Mick having the records was a big deal. Right. And they make up their own, they try to copy it exactly. But in copying it, they just necessarily change it and invent something new by accident. And then they come back to America, to Chicago, to Chess Records, where all those Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Chuck Berry, all on Chess Records. Right. And they bring this music back to chess, and they play it for these guys. And they liked it because they recognized this is us, but this is something new. Right. And um, to me, I always said that the longest trip, because Chicago is so segregated, north side white, south side black, the longest trip from the north side, uh, the, the trip from the north side of Chicago to the south side went through London. Hmm. Because suddenly through the Beatles and the Stones, all these white kids discovered this music, which, had, like you said, had been there all along. Right. Um, but the racial barriers kept them away from it. Right. And um, there's a really famous story where Paul McCartney at his first press conference, they say, what do you want to see in America? And he says, Muddy Waters. And they, the reporter says, where's that? You know? Wow. I, th- I feel like I've seen that clip wow. before. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your favorite uh, Rolling Stone song? Wild Just- Horses. Wild horses. That's it. It's wild I've horses. Of, I, what's really yeah. funny is what I appreciate about you being here with this yeah. is so when Ryan Holiday was here, I had read his book, and it was really hard for me to interview him because I knew the answers to all the questions. I know you like more than anything. So for him to ask the questions and to hear it again is so funny for me because I'm just being, this spoke to me. Like that's crazy. He's and, talking to you, is what he's telling it's, you. It because, Watch well, out. Well, because what I find very funny is is that rock and roll is something that we all love, but I don't know why we love it, because it speaks to a part of you. Football, for me, is something that I've always loved, and I didn't know why. Right. And this put into context a little bit. Well, that's bit. why the context is so important. Now, he said, so if you want to understand why you know, Elvis Presley was a big deal, because we're looking at it from the future back exactly. to Go look what else was on the radio at the yeah, time. Yeah, right. I mean, par- I always say parents freaked out because they thought this is the end of America, and they were right. Right. Turns out they're right about what they were talking about. Right. I mean, it was hugely subversive and scary, mm. you know. And it's so always say like, if you want to know what a big deal Marlon Brando was, go look at a Gary Cooper movie. You know, it's like that context that we're missing, and that's kind of one of the things I want to do with the book, which is to show you what it felt like at the time. What it was mm. right, which is it was shocking. Yes, and it was dirty, and the stuff they were saying was unbelievable. And you had the Beatles come in singing, I want to hold your hand. Right. And then suddenly the Rolling Stones come in with this incredibly dirty music, yeah. you know, which was the Mississippi Blues remade by In Their Way. Yeah. And um, Tom Wolfe at the time wrote, you know, the, the Beatles want to hold your hand, the Rolling Stones want to burn down your town. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, you yeah. know, they were... Yeah. Um, right. You said that the one thing you wanted to do was have a catch with Jim McMahon. Yeah. What was the one thing you wanted to do with Keith Richards? Smoke, drink, like what did you want to do? Go on the town? I guess I'd like to play guitar with him, you know. Can you play the guitar? Yeah. All right. Yeah, and it never, really, cool. it never really came up, and I'd feel stupid right. saying it. And well, everyone, can it still happen? Maybe. I mean, you know where he lives. Yep. I would like to play guitar with him. Man, I would, I'd like to do, yeah. I wouldn't want to play guitar with him, but I'd like to hang out with him. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I'd like to do a lot of illegal things <laughs> with Keith. Uh, well, he lives in Connecticut, apparently. I, 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 it's unbelievable. Keith Richards? Oh, yeah. He lives in Connecticut? Yes. 
Are you kidding me? I had no idea. I had no idea either. Episode <laughs> 73 from his house. Where, we could do it. Where does he live? I'm going to his house. Well, he was saying that he goes to this one restaurant and he, and he sees, sees him there. Still. Okay, all right. That's pretty Actually, cool. it's funny because you can tell he's coming because you see the guy behind the You're sitting there eating. And you see the guy behind the bar suddenly go like. <laughs> and then he runs over and gets like a big glass, like a water glass, right. and fills it to the top with vodka and puts it down oh. and then changes the tape to reggae. Oh, my gosh. This guy's and then a minute later he comes if in. Keith sees, <laughs> if Keith <laughs> sees you, there's recognition there? Yes. How but cool who knows? Feel? But who knows, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, it's like Jim McMahon. Like everybody said like how, you know, how messed up he was because right. of his injury. And when I met him... He seemed great to me. Yeah, right. yeah. And he remembered everything. And he said the hardest time he'd ever was ever hit was in college. Mm. You know, right? right. Awesome. Uh, I highly recommend these books. I highly recommend everything that Rich does. Uh, Monsters is this one. This is about the Bears. Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and the Wild Heart of Football. If you appreciate football, it is a great dive into the history. When you start reading about Jim Thorpe, you go. Man, this is the baddest ass dude on the planet. And I, I think it has one of the greatest speeches from George Hallis ever, the first one. I'm not going to ruin it, but let's just say he, it's a little short, it's a little sweet. And then this one, the one that I just finished, Sun, the Moon, the Rolling Stones, I recommend that you sit there with Spotify or iTunes, and when Rich writes a song, put the song on, because you actually, that, that's the way to consume the book. I sat there, I finished 300 pages in like a day and a half. Freaking awesome. Wow. He I'm impressed. It. 300 pages in a day and a He's half. He's read one book in his life. I like to tell that to all our <laughs> Sorry, I Sorry. Maybe I'll let you get audio versions? Maybe yeah, I'll, there is an audio that version. That would be more, oh, me, more uh, me. Rich, thank you so much for being here, Thanks man. for having me. You're the man, dude. Yeah, appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. That's fun. Oh, appreciate yeah. it, Yeah. That was Rich Cohen. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did, too. What did you think? Well, I mean, uh, listen, I was more, the 85 Bear stuff was cool, but to listen about the Rolling Stones, just get a little in-depth there. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of similarities sometimes between, yeah. you know, of course, NFL superstars and rock stars. There's a little bit of the same that approach. 80,000 people chain your name. That controlled you craziness that makes you good. Right. Uh, and that's, you, we, I think we had this conversation not long ago. I mean, it's what makes it really hard on football players when their career is over or athletes in general because you rock stars can go to their seventy. You guys talked still, about this last week, right? Yeah. They still get this fanfare and the adrenaline rush at 70. The football guy who's 32 and he's going, man, I've had the last 12 years of my life with this adrenaline. Yeah. What the hell am I going to do now? Go be a banker or something? Yeah. That's, that's tough to deal with. What'd Which book think? should people read first if they're going to pick one of them? Uh, the Rolling Stones book just came out. I mean, for our audience, we're a football-centric audience. Yeah. I really think it was really cool for me to learn about like the genesis of the NFL. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're talking about these guys sitting around in a car dealership and someone being like, I'll pay $10,000 for a team in Chicago. Right. You're like, holy crap. Like, it started in a car dealership, and you realize that um, how it worked, and and these, like, college players. And for our audience, I think that book is great. But I'm telling you to sit down with that book with iTunes or Spotify and be playing the music as you're reading it and getting taken into a world of music that I didn't even, like, know about. So sick. Yeah. So good. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was an interesting comparison between something that people don't spend a lot of time comparing. Yeah. Which is it's cool. good to have Fendrick back. Eh, is it, though? Okay. Sim seems disappointed. It's okay. It's just uh, all right. All right. So let's, still mad at him. Yeah, I know. I'm mad at him, too. 
Uh, so I want to get into some of the news and notes. Uh, the Kevin Durant story doesn't seem to go away, but I think the interesting note that's been coming out lately has been the Tom Brady trying to woo. I remember when it happened, I thought, what the hell is Tom Brady going to say right. that's going to matter to Kevin Durant? And Kevin Durant, as he's working out for the USA basketball team, said, I quote, I was just ready to say, okay, let's go, after hearing Tom Brady. Just seeing someone that's so successful at his craft, he's a great ambassador, ambassador for the game of football in the city of Boston, it's great to be in the presence of such greatness, but at the same time, I knew I couldn't let that distract me. So you know it was a good pitch when afterwards you have to go, okay, it doesn't really matter. Right. But if you were looking at a free agency in the NFL team and, is you know. There, is there camaraderie between the pro athletes in the same this city? this day and age? Uh, yeah, definitely in the same city. Let me, yes, ask, you, no, let me ask you this. So if you're going and you're like, man, the Cleveland Browns really want you to come and LeBron walks and he right. goes, come to Cleveland. Yeah. Would that really have an impact on you? No, it would be really cool. It would be a little icing on the cake, but I'm not letting that frame my decision. And what I always find funny about those stories is what did they think Kevin Durant was going to say? Oh, I went to the Hamptons. Tom really wasn't that impressive. And he didn't really make Boston sound so cool, so I decided not to go there. Mm. Uh, that's, I always, that's just me, the ex-athlete, picking apart those stories. Because, uh, like, what answer would he really Yeah, give? what answer is he going to give to the public? Uh, but regardless, uh, I'm sure, I mean, Tom is a smart, well-spoken guy. He's a good leader. He's a good public speaker. Yeah. He would know the right things to say. And I'm sure he incentivized. And it's kind of cool, I guess. It is but. really cool. And Durant has a true love for Ke- Tom Brady. It's supposedly he's his favorite athlete in, in the world right oh, now. Oh, really? Yes. And uh, the, the other thing I think, you know, the one thing people don't realize about Boston until you get up there and get a little experience, it's the number one f- sports town in America, in my opinion. I mean, it's the Just only in place. Terms of education. It's the only place you can go to the dog park and hear a 27-year-old woman talking about, like, I think they should have thrown the ball to Edelman last week more, and I'm amazed by that. So I know we've talked about that before. Um, and I, I'm sick of hearing about the Hamptons. Holy cow. NFL, is, every, is every star in the world go to the Hamptons now? I mean, it's Friday. Go, it's Friday. we got to go to the Hamptons, or we're not really a superstar. It's funny because I see pictures of the Hamptons, and I go, oh, I wish I could have gone to the Hamptons. I would it really don't want to go classy. anywhere near like, it. Why? Because, I, I mean, I grew up up here in the New York area. I've been to the Hamptons before. It is awesome. It's great. But now it's just like I got friends who live here in New York. They don't want to be seen out here in New York on a Friday night because they're supposed to be in the Hamptons, and that's where the cool people are. And I want to be like, no, you're a loser. Do they take helicopters out there? Uh, I mean, I, who knows? If they're rich enough, I'm sure. I mean, uh, speaking to, like, your reaction to the Brady-Durant thing is what is he supposed to say? Right. Uh, first of all, I just want to say this. It's July 20th. Happy birthday, Ben Simmons. Yes. So happy that he's on my team. Uh, but um, – one thing that I saw today was, oh, Jameis Winston loses 20 pounds and we're making a big deal out of it. Yeah. Well, one, I feel like a lot of NFL players get in a much better shape before their second season because right. the first season is such a freaking whirlwind. Right. And then I saw pro football talk was like, we'll see if it has an impact. Someone changing their body and losing 20 pounds and getting in shape is going to have an enormous impact. I'm curious what kind of impact you think, because he had a great year last year. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think you got to look at it. First of all, he's a very good athlete. He's he's an un, uh, under the radar athlete. I mean, Did you he, ever think that he looked slow or out of shape last no, year? No, he's a little awkward at times. I know he's a hair out of shape. I would say that was the and we talked about it back when he was in the draft. The number one thing that bothered me a he's little a is a little bit of his body type. But I also think we got to take into account. It's the first time in a long time Jameis Winston hasn't had to worry about baseball in the springtime. 
Ah. Uh, that's where I think a lot of, like, I read these stories and go, hey, idiots, uh, he played baseball his whole life. He got done with football and then right to co- pitching for the Florida State Seminoles. And just sitting in the freaking bullpen right. so for he's hours, doing that. spitting he's just, out seeds. Right, throwing balls. And, of course, they're, yeah, they're not into the cardio type of workouts. So, yeah, he got to really focus on being a quarterback this yeah. year. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, you know what I think of him. He's the man. I think he's going to have a big year. Uh, speaking of the Bucks, that's where Brent Grimes is now, right? Oh, yes. Uh, so, Miko Grimes, <laughs> famous in the news again. The wife of Brent Grimes loves to talk. I'm going to read a few comments from Miko, and I'm interested in your take. One, okay. Kobe Bryant fans are different. They remind me of Ryan Tannehill fans. Both are stupid, but at least Kobe was a baller. Tannehill is a bum. Uh, another one, being Tannehill fan is like being an Eric Snow fan when Iverson was on the team. I don't get it. He doesn't do anything dope. Nothing. What a random Eric Snow reference. Really random. Little story. Man, I, what did Ryan Tannehill do to her? I don't I know. I once pinched Eric Snow's nipple. Oh, that is very I random. was out there pregame before a playoff game, <laughs> and he was walking by and signing autographs, and this was back in like when I was, I don't know, 14, and, and titty, titty twisters. Titty I don't know if I can say that. Purple nurples Ooh, was cool. Say that so I went out. And I grabbed, good, I, don't care. I grabbed Eric Snow, and Eric Snow was like, I'm not signing any more autographs because he didn't know who did it, and he ran away. So, anyway, random one. That and then weird. also about Stephen Ross, this is what got a lot of attention, qu- tweeted out, got a respect for Ross for keeping his Jew buddies employed, right. but but did he not see how Tannenbaum put the Jets in the dumpster with that Sanchez deal? And also, the Dolphins effing stink. They will never be great so long as Stephen Ross is the owner, Tannenbaum is the GM, and Tannehill is the quarterback. No way I was going to let him retire with a bum and talk about her husband yes. Brent at quarterback GM and owner no effing way we will go out on a, with a real quarterback not a wide receiver at quarterback wow that is brutal so when I hear like the Jew comment as a Jewish person you're kind of like that's just unnecessary it wasn't stupid. needed especially when your owners in Tampa are Jewish as well the Glazer family yeah, and they haven't made a comment about it no. but I also I mean everyone knows you don't have to go into that and the merits of that that's so out of right. line but the running back, the, the quarterback wide receiver one is something that a lot of people have talked about. He was a wide receiver, my quarterback, quarterback yeah, playing wide sure. receiver. But the whole, it gets really kind of divisive and sexist in terms of you can't say this. We saw this with uh, Curry's wife. Stay at it. Stay in your lane. Don't say anything. I think it would be the same thing as if, as if a brother or a parent, like if Marcus Vick tweeted right. about Michael Vick, we'd yeah. have the same reaction. Right. I'm just curious in those locker rooms. You talk about the Bucks right now. What do you think the players are, are when they see Brent Grimes? Do they talk to him about it? Yo, yo, man, get your wife to shut That's up. A, like, it's a very touchy subject. That really is. Because you can't uh, go especially to a with a bunch talk- of alpha males in the NFL. It is. It's a toughy subject. A tough subject. Uh, first of all, she's she's a loose cannon. I wouldn't want anything to do with her or him on my football team, regardless. I mean. Some of the things she says. First of all, has she played football in college? She's not. Oh, I can, I can in the NFL, does she play? So, no. so she doesn't really know. Here's the what thing: the she hell. was given her own like radio show. Which, whenever you're given, but whenever you're given time it. space, right. you think you're an expert. Yes, sure, I, I understand. And it. she was celebrated as a knowledgeable wife, which I what that's okay, sure, a knowledgeable great. wife. I, I understand that too. Still, uh, even in the NFL terms or football expert terms, a knowledgeable wife sometimes it's not that knowledgeable, really. And I think this would be one of those times. And that would be the same um, thing if it's a knowledgeable friend. She can make in-depth friend. football analytics observations, 
when I, she doesn't know what she's really talking about. So that's just wrong on that part Has there of it. been anything that she said before you're like, oh, she can't? Well, the stuff about Ryan she... Tannehill, I mean, it's obviously personal because I watch, you know I watch every Dolphins game. I've watched every throw of Ryan Tannehill the last, his whole career. Uh, Ryan Tannehill is not as bad as what she's trying to make him out to be. Is, is he one of the ten best quarterbacks? No, but he's in the top half of football. Mm. And, uh, yes, I would know he was a wide receiver, but, you know, that Dolphins team hasn't exactly had great running backs or great receivers around Ryan Tannehill. I would say the coaches they've had uh, were pretty average as well. I'm blowing up Adam Schefter's way style. below. Yeah, so th- th- he hasn't had help around him. And then, you know, I think the biggest thing with her – you know, the, she's she's not helping her husband. That's really what she doesn't realize. She is certainly guys are clowning him in the locker room behind his back, without a doubt. He's walking on the other side of the locker room, and people are going, "Don't worry, his wife will sh- get him in shape later." But he's going to get talked about behind his back the whole time. And once uh, he reaches an age where his play isn't that high, that's what he's teams lose. aren't going to take a exactly chance on right. Him. He's going to lose the benefit of the doubt if he's a fringe player this year on the cut, and they go, man, it's between him or a second-year guy, they're going to cut him because of Miko Grimes. They're going to go, you know what? I, the owners, the GM, the front, they're all going to be like, I don't even want to deal with her. Let's get rid of, get rid of him, get rid of her. If, he's, if, 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 if uh, Brent is this much better than a guy, they're going to take the other guy because they're not going to want to deal with I him and her. I think that's the issue that right. I have. It's not that people can't have their opinion. It's not that women shouldn't be speaking about a sport that they don't play because, frankly, there's no opportunity for them to do it. Right. But I would say my issue is the reason we all get all clammy about this is we know how short your time span is to be in the NFL. And I know it's never good to say, hey, don't jeopardize this. Hold back your feelings to survive. Right. But – that is the way of the NFL, and it's super rigid. And we we want Brent Grimes to be able to last as long as possible. And what what I don't think Miko understands, what I don't think a lot of people understands, is when you're no longer playing, you're no longer relevant. So Miko is having this opinion, and I'm sure that she's saying, and I agree yeah. that she is she has a high Q rating right, right now, where she is the wife of an NFL player. Yeah, she's going to have information. Right, she's going to have a playbook and the plays and all that stuff. At her house, right. so maybe she does have more information than a lot of other people. But as soon as he's no longer playing, she's no longer as relevant either. And her lifespan of having radio shows, TV appearances, people caring what she says on Twitter, yeah. eventually she's going to be seen as a senile, unnecessary person Agreed. whose opinions don't matter. Right. And the longer he plays, the longer she can be relevant. And you might be taking him off a roster because. One, I can get a guy for a lot less. Right. That's not going to be a distraction. Right. And Brent Grimes is on the downturn yes, right now. Definitely. He really is. Yes, as a smaller corner. And, you know, we, you and I talk about this a lot, and I know you've heard it too. NFL coaches, by most part, are old school. They're conservative. They're still kind of in that frame of, you know, without being – I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Hey, wife in the kitchen, and I go out and do the work, and I come home and provide. That's kind of like – that's an NFL coach. So they well, can't you hear even the stories relate. about how coaches are like never there for their families. Right, you right. Know? So they can't even relate to like what this wife is just going off the hinges and yeah. talking publicly about my profession. And I and I so this that, is this is my point. If I was giving financial advice, yeah, stop freaking talking about it for free. Save it. 
put it into a book, and then sell a lot of copies of tell-all. If you want to monetize your information and be relevant, right. that getting paid $30,000 a year for being on a radio show and hopefully getting ad sales leveraged against that is a waste of time. We know a few writers here at the podcast. Do the confessions of a football wife and then lay out all that stuff afterwards and then sell those exper- excerpts to get you money. Right. That's what I would advise. Yeah, I would, that's a good advice. That's the real talk. Yeah. Uh, last thing that I want to say is we talk about perceptions. And I think one, one take that you have that's interesting is with the blow-up that Paul Feinbaum and Nick Saban had where there's a few more athletes for Nick Saban where uh, things happened off the field, gun possession, stuff like that. He was asked about it. about And, you know, it, it's painting these kids into a rough light and a bad kid. Yeah, and, right. and how are you enabling this stuff to go on? Right. And your point on all this is we, we, we treat these kids who have these off the field. We'll just give you your point. All right. Well, I, I, listen, I, I, first of all, I, I mean, the attacks on Nick Saban. I mean, come on. How, we haven't seen a lot of guys in Alabama from Alabama in the NFL really have issues. Only one that comes to the top of my head is Rolando McClain, really, right? I mean, other than that, I, don't, I can't think of Alabama guys where we're going, man, these Alabama players, they're crazy. Mm. There's 100 kids on his college football team. He's going to have two or three. They're going to get in trouble every now and then. Uh, and now we all want to vilify him. Why? Because that top tackle, right, got caught with a gun and marijuana. Oh, no. Oh, wait. His gun was properly uh, registered, and it was a legal carrying state. But no one ever puts that in the headlines. Like, it's more. it's a lot sexier to I put think it's a lot sexier. Alabama it's a little racist. It's a little everything. I think it's a lot of bull crap. Uh, okay, yeah, a young kid was doing marijuana. I'm sure he's the only 19-year-old in America doing marijuana, and it's the only guy, so let's arrest him. So I give kudos to the Alabama DA or district attorney who didn't charge it, said I'm not going to ruin some kid's life because he had a gun, uh, which was registered, and because he had marijuana. So great for him. And then, yeah, my SEC thing is I love the SEC. Everybody gets on the SEC because they go, all they care about is football. Well, those kids need a future, too. I, I don't understand. So why does the kid with a great brain and the no physical ability, he gets to have the chance of a future? But here we are, a bunch of kids from broken homes, tough lifestyles. Their only way to further their life is to play football and become really good at that. And the SEC gives these kids a chance. I love it. I think it's awesome. Go ahead, SEC. Keep whooping the shit out of everybody else in college football. Mm. That was good. Yeah. yeah, felt good. I, don't, I just don't get it. It's young kids who, yeah, of course. How many kids did you go to school with in high school that, I, at least I did, where I know I went with a handful, D minus, F, D minus. Where, what college are you going to? Oh, Villanova? I was in every class with you. You never got over a C minus in any class. Oh, your dad donated money or you knew this person? Mm. So they're afforded these opportunities too in white America. Uh, I just I think it's nice that the SEC says, you know, screw academics, let's play football. Well, I think that's <laughs> the beautiful thing about an, an athletic scholarship is it can set you out. Like, the, the, it's like 1% of kids will go and end up playing in the NFL yes. and making money that is generational change. Right. But if you can give – I know I played at a high school where we got a lot of kids from the inner city that came to our school to play basketball. And they got four-year degrees. Right. And now they have really good jobs. Right. And 
and they might not have gotten that if basketball wasn't an option. Yeah, right. And I think that's what it's meant to do. Yes. It's it's not just meant to entertain. It's not just meant to win. And that it goes back to the whole thing about providing an education and is it enough? Now, I am one of the people that say these kids should still get paid. Yeah, yeah. But to say that they should Listen, be I also there say they should go better, be better in school, all that too, but I'm just saying I like the SEC stands. And maybe taking some kids that maybe other conferences might not take or schools might not take. That's maybe just... you bring them to an environment and they flourish. Right. Uh, Fendrick, is it good to be back? It is great to be back. I think it's going to be a couple weeks in a row that I'm here, too, which will oh, be good. Oh, well, great. Great. That's glad to have you. Thanks, man. Happy. Just I still want you right here. Might be coming soon. Good. Who knows? Okay. I don't like that idea. Sims? Say Peace out, homies. Josh? Goodbye, everybody. See you next week. Control room. Can I get a little wave from the beauties in the back? Beep, bop, boop, oh, hey. Oh, hello. The three amigos. Hey, Jakey Simpers. Would you say I have a plethora of gifts? You know the amigos, three amigos? You don't know that. No, Sorry. I don't. That's uh, to episode up. 73 uh, coming up next week. Going to be great. As always, thank you so much. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Sims and Lefko. Subscribe on iTunes, Audio Boom. Thank you so much for being awesome. For Rich Cohen, Chris Sims, Josh Fendrick, I'm Adam Lefko. This has been Sims and Lefko, episode 72. Did you like that? That was really good.